0: give our praise band a big hand this morning. Thank you for leading us. You know, I just wanted to mention one other thing. Uh, J.B. was mentioning all the guys who worked at the, the brick house, and he forgot to, and, and uh, one of them was Robert Bryant, who came out early yesterday and helped us, and I, I also helped yesterday, and I like that kill me. <laughs> And so uh, we worked hard yesterday. I think everybody was dead beat when they got home and it was a good day. And uh, we are going to be working on that again on November 6th. I hope that you will plan to help us accomplish that task. You know, um, we had a wonderful celebration last Sunday morning, didn't we? Just reflecting on the heritage and the history of First Baptist Church. And I was thinking about, you know, we are a chosen generation and we are a church that really is going to endure from generation to generation. And And one of the things that I wanted to ask us this morning, when we think about a church that endures from generation to generation, when we think about a church that is going to be here for years to come, I want to ask you this question. What about the change in our lives? What about the difference that Christ makes? What about the change that we should expect when we live for Christ? And so this morning we're talking about walking this way, walking in Christ. And you know, one of my favorite singers is Stephen Curtis Chapman. Stephen, Stephen Curtis Chapman is a solid of a Christian singer that I know. And I don't know him personally, but just listening to his music and hearing about his life, life's journey. But he wrote a song a few years ago, and it really talks about the Christian walk. And it was entitled, The Change. And it went like this. Well, I got myself a t-shirt that says what I believe. I got WWJD letters on my bracelet to serve as my ID. I got the necklace and I got the keychain and almost everything a good Christian needs. I got the little Bible magnets on my refrigerator door. I got the the little welcome mat to bless you when you come across my floor. He said, I got a Jesus bumper sticker and I've got an outline of a fish stuck on my car. And although this stuff is well and good, I can't help but ask the question, what about change? What about the difference? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing I'm undergoing the change? I am undergoing the change. You know, the Christian life is a changed life, isn't it? It's taking off the old and putting on the... The Bible says that if you are in Christ, then you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We're new. And over the last few weeks, I've been going over our church covenant. I've been talking about how you know, our theme, generation to generation, really is in alignment with our church covenant. And, and there's, a, there's a point in our church covenant I really thought we needed to, to reflect on this morning when we think about the change. It goes like this In our church covenant, it says, We commit to a lifestyle, to live a lifestyle that glorifies and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. Remembering that we have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. A lifestyle that glorifies Christ and exalts Christ is contingent on being buried with Christ and raised to new life in Christ. Now the Bible's word for lifestyle is walk. When the Bible talks about how you live, it often uses the word walk. How you walk is how you live. Your lifestyle is how you walk. In Deuteronomy Chapter 10, verse 12, the Bible says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, and to serve Him with all your heart, with all your soul. It says to walk. and how you live. To walk is how you live. And then Romans 6, 4, Paul said this, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In other words, since we've been buried with Christ in baptism, and since we've been raised to new life, let us live a lifestyle that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes right out of Romans 6, 4, doesn't it? Then I think about Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul said that you may walk worthy of the Lord. In other words, we need a lifestyle that's worthy of the Lord. How we live is how we walk. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. So live for Him. Have a lifestyle that exalts and glorifies Christ. Now why would the Bible refer to the way that we live as a walk? Have you ever been on a walk? It's one step at a time, isn't it? It's a progression. And so when the Bible says that how we live in Christ is how we walk, it's talking about a daily progression, a step-by-step. We don't get there overnight. It's a step-by-step process. You know, they they say that, that the journey of a thousand miles begins with what? The first step. Do you know what the first step is in the Christian life? It's that moment that you're born in Christ. It's that moment that you're born again. It's the moment that you put your faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And you become a new creation. That's step one. When you believe and put your faith in Christ. Step one. And this morning we're talking about not just that first step, but we're talking about the steps that come after that. Living a changed life. Living a lifestyle that honors and glorifies Christ. Christ. But I want to give you a caveat this morning. I don't want you to miss this. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. You cannot glorify Christ and exalt Him in your own strength. You cannot pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps or your own intellectual bootstraps. You cannot use your own willpower and live for Christ. You'll never do it. I heard some people say, maybe you've heard this. Living the Christian life is hard. You ever heard somebody say that? Living the Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. You cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. Nobody can. It's not just hard to live for Jesus. It's impossible. See, the Christian life is a supernatural life. The, the, the Christian life is a supernatural walk. It must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus said, I am the divine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. The Christian life is a Spirit-empowered life. And if you're an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, and you were born again, did you know that the Holy Spirit lives in you? He resides in you. He lives in you. He resides in you. But for some Christians, He resides in you, but He does not preside over you. He is resident in your life, but He's not president in your life. You know, resident means He lives there. President means He governs you. And for some Christians, they have the Holy Spirit living in them, but they're not yielded to Him. And He doesn't govern them. You know, sometimes when you read the Bible, you'll you'll read a story of someone who was possessed by demons. You you remember reading those stories? You ever notice when somebody's possessed by a demon, they begin to act differently because that demon controls them? and begins to make them do things they wouldn't normally do? And there's one occasion in the Bible where this boy was possessed by a demon. And the Bible says that that demon would throw him into the fire trying to destroy him. There's another occasion where a man had, uh, uh, was demon possessed. And the Bible says he would sit in the graveyard and he would take glass and he would just cut himself. That's strange, isn't it? This person was being controlled by a demon. You know, I read those stories. And maybe I don't pray this as much as I used to. But there would be times I would say, Jesus, I want you to possess me the way a demon possessed that man. So that you control me to the point that I do not do what I normally would do. That that I would begin to do what I should be doing when I can't do it on my own. I need you to possess me. And the Holy Spirit wants to be resident and president in your life. A.W. Tozer said, you know, in the average church, the average congregation, so much of what takes place doesn't really require the Holy Spirit. You know what he said? He said, if the Holy Spirit were removed from the church, 95% of what we do would still go on and nobody would know the difference. He said, but if the Holy Spirit had been removed from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would have stopped and everybody would have known it. We are dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian walk is a walk that's dependent on the Spirit of God. And so this morning, we're talking about how we walk and how we live. And so if you've got your Bibles, and I know you do, turn into your Bibles or turn on to Ephesians chapter 5 and hold your spot in chapter 5. And then flip back over to chapter 1. Because we're going to kind of take a walk through Ephesians real quick this morning. You know, and Paul, when he wrote Ephesians, he did something kind of masterful. He took the first three chapters of Ephesians, chapter 1, 2, and 3, And in that, he told you about doctrine. He taught you what you should believe. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he told you how you should behave. So he told you what to believe, and then he told you how to behave. He, He took the first three chapters, and he told you how rich you are in Christ. And then in the last three chapters, he said, now these are your responsibilities in Christ. And that's what Ephesians is all about. And you ought to go back and just look at the whole book. But you know what he said to the church in Ephesus? He said, you are so rich in Christ... You are so wealthy in Christ, but you're living like spiritual beggars. You're living like spiritual paupers when you ought to be the prince that God has made you to be or the princess that God has made you to be. You know, kind of reminds me of a a book. Maybe you've read it by Mark Twain. And this book was called The Prince and the Pauper. Maybe you've read it. And in this book, Mark Twain talks about two figures. One was Tom Canty and the other one was Prince Edward. And those, those two boys, they looked a lot alike, and they, they, but they lived on different sides of the tracks. One day they had a happenstance encounter, and they saw one another, and they thought, hey, you know, we kind of look alike. And so Prince Edward invited Tom Canty, the beggar, the pauper, into the palace. And so when they got in there, they thought, hey, let's just swap clothes. And we, when they did, they realized how much they looked alike. And so they looked so much alike that the palace guard saw the prince dressed in the beggar's clothes, and they kicked him out of the palace. Because they thought he was Tom Canty. And there was Tom Canty in the palace, a beggar, dressed in a prince's clothes. But he didn't know how to act like a prince. All he knew was how to act like a beggar. And there he was in the palace, and and so the the king, King Edward, realized, hey, my son, he's kind of acting strange, he might be a little mad, I don't know what's wrong with him. So he told all the staff, he said, just kind of go along with him until he gets past this phase. I don't know what's wrong with, with my son, he acts so different. Because Tom Canty didn't know how to act like a prince. And you know, during a royal dinner, they were having dinner and, and they brought out a finger bowl. Now, I don't use a finger bowl. Do you know what a finger bowl is? You know, it's, they, they bring it and it's got so, dishwater or soap water in it and you wash your fingers after you eat. And so they brought that out and Tom Canty saw that. He thought it was soup. And so he saw it come out. And he, he took a sip and everybody thought, well, he's acting strange. He just drank the, you know, finger, the water out of the finger bowl. And this is what he said. He said, you know, it likes me not my Lord, is <laughs> it has a pretty flavor, but it lacks strength. <laughs> and he realized that was the wrong thing to do, but he didn't know how to act like a prince. And then he found a book in his room that really told about how to, how, to, how to practice the right etiquette. He wanted to study that book so he'd know how to act. And so whenever Paul wrote Ephesians, that's what he did for you and me. He taught us how to act like a prince or a princess. How to be a co-heir with Christ. And that's what Ephesians is all about. So Paul's trying to encourage us so we know how to walk as a follower of Christ. And then I think about Tom Canty there in the palace and there there was Prince Edward. And where is he? He's on the street like a beggar. And he's the prince. And so many Christians are living like beggars when they are princes and princesses in Christ. That's what God made us to be. Let me show you real quick. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace. You have been forgiven in Christ, redeemed by the blood of Christ. How rich are you? And then look at just a page over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Look what Paul says about you. And you, Christ made alive. You were dead dead in your Passes in sin and Christ made you alive. How rich are you? And then a little, little bit further down in verse 12, it describes what your life was like without Christ. Listen to what he says. You were without Christ. You were an alien, a stranger from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were, you were without God in this world. You know what Paul's saying? You were a spiritual beggar before Christ came to your life. You were a spiritual pauper without Christ. Now look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. I love this verse. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been what? Brought near by the blood of Christ. You are a chosen generation. God made you that way. And then look a little bit further down in in verse 19. Don't you love this verse? You are no longer strangers and foreigners. But what does God call you? Fellow citizens. He doesn't even stop there. He says now you're members of the household of God. You are a a co-heir with Christ. Do you realize how rich you are in Christ? You are rich in Christ. But then Paul says, now listen, now that you know who you are in Christ. Now you know what to believe about who you are in Christ. Let me tell you how to behave in Christ. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Just one verse out of chapter 4. Paul says this. I, therefore, in light of what I just told you, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, in light of those, I beseech you. I plead with you, I beg you, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk worthy. In other words, let your practice be in line with your position in Christ. Walk worthy. Now I want to give you three ways that God wants you to walk today. Three ways, real quick. We're back in chapter 5 now. We kind of made our run through the book of Ephesians. In chapter 5, verse 1, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Have you ever noticed how a child imitates their parents? I mean, sometimes a a dad will come home and he's got his size 13 shoe and he kicks those shoes off and that little five-year-old boy with that tiny little foot, what does he do? He'll go, go over there and pick his dad's shoes up, does big old boats, and he puts them on his feet and he tries to walk around the house wearing his dad's shoes. You ever seen that happen? What's he doing? He's imitating his dad. I think about a little girl who sees her mother put on lipstick and so she sees that morning after morning so what does she want to do she wants to emulate her mother and she puts lipstick on all different places because she's trying to imitate her mother that's why we ought to be so careful how we live isn't it because children are watching our example how we walk in this world and so the bible says that we are to imitate god as dear children now let me just say you can't imitate some things about god did you know you cannot imitate God's omnipresence? You know, Omnipresence means that God is at all places at all times. And sometimes people might think that their pastor is omnipresent. But let me just say, they didn't offer omnipresence at seminary. I didn't study it, and so I certainly can't be in all places. We can't imitate God's omnipresence. We cannot Im- imitate God's omniscience. That means God's all-knowing. They didn't offer that at seminary either. I wish I had taken it if they had it. But we cannot emulate God's omniscience and His omnipresence and His omnipotence. We can't do that. But He does say we can imitate His love. We can love like He loved. We can emulate His love. Imitate His love. How does God love you? He loves you willfully. He chooses to love you. He loves you unconditionally. He loves you sacrificially. That's how Jesus loves you. Paul said here that Jesus was an offering for us. It says that he, he made Himself an offering and a sacrifice to God. Do you know how they did this in the Old Testament? They would take an animal, perfect animal without spot, without blemish, and they would bring that animal to that priest. And He'd put His hands on the head of that spotless animal and he would begin to confess the sins of the people on that animal and it was kind of symbolic of, of, of that transfer of this people's sins onto this animal and then that priest would take a knife and he would slaughter that animal and he would let that blood drain out into a bowl and then he'd take that bowl full of blood of that spotless lamb he'd go into, in, into the holy of holies you know what the Holy of Holies... You know what's in the Holy of Holies? You know, we talk about that being symbolic of God's presence. But in the Holy of Holies, there would be an ark. The Ark of the Covenant. And inside that ark was the Ten Commandments. And on the top of that ark would be a, a, a top, a lid. and it would, I hate to even use the word lid. It was called the Mercy Seat. And the Mercy Seat covered the Ten Commandments that was inside that ark. And that priest would take that blood and he'd pour it onto that mercy seat and it was symbolic of how God, uh, how the blood of that spotless animal covered our sin because we transgressed the law. And the Bible says that's how Jesus loved you and then that, he would take that carcass of that animal, he'd put it on a bronze altar and he'd burn it in fire until it was consumed and that the aroma from that, that animal being cooked on that bronze altar would be a sweet smelling aroma. And the Bible says that's how Jesus loved you. Willfully, unconditionally, sacrificially. That's how Jesus loves you. Makes me think of a song. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how He loves you and me. And He says that we are to imitate that kind of love. Jesus loves you willfully and unconditionally and sacrificially. When He died on that cross, He became sin for us so that we could be forgiven. His blood was poured out so that our sin could be covered. He calls us to love that way. Don't turn to it, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he kind of gives us a little bit of a picture of what that might look like when it's played out. He says, be kind to one another. What does that mean? It means to be considerate of one another. Be tender-hearted. Don't think the worst in somebody. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Be tender-hearted toward others. And then he says, and just as God forgave you, forgive one another. But do you know how we love? Sometimes. We don't love that way. We love begrudgingly. We harbor bitterness. We harbor harbor unforgiveness. And sometimes we do do that at the most insignificant offenses. And we won't forgive. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there a sin that's so big that if you confessed it to the Lord Jesus Christ that He wouldn't forgive you? In 1 John 1.9... The Bible says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, God can can forgive our sin, but we can't forgive others. That's not loving like Jesus loves. God says we are to forgive as He has forgiven you. He did it sacrificially, He did it unconditionally, He did it willfully. And if you're going to love like Jesus loves, you know what you're going to have to put to death? Your pride. Because really, that's why we don't forgive, isn't it? It's our pride. I mean, we go to God and we say, God, you know, my sin, it's not that big a deal. It's not that offensive. But when that person said something to me, I mean, that was was offensive. It was unforgivable. I can't forgive that person for what they said or what they did. And yet Christ has forgiven you of all your sin. Do you not see the contrast? God has called us to love like He loves to walk in love. I could go on about that. I'm going to move to the next thing. We are to walk in love. But the Bible says that we are to walk in light. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. It says, "...but fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints." Now, I call these the lust sins. These are the greed sins. We're greedy for power. We're greedy for prosperity. We're greedy for pleasure. These are the lust sins. I mean, it talks about things like covetousness and fornication. And and, uh, that would include all kinds of sexual acts outside of marriage. Did you know that word fornication? If you go look it up in the Greek, the word is porneia. It's a word from which we get our English word pornography. He says, those things shouldn't even be fitting. It's not fitting for the saints. They don't belong in the life of a prince or a princess of Christ. They're not suited to the child of God. These are the works of darkness. But look at verse 4. He says, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. you know what these are? These are what I call the lip. Sins. You got the lust sins and now you got the lip sins. These are the sins that you commit with your mouth, the things that you say to one another and about one another. These are the lip sins. Somebody said, You know, if you really want to know what's inside a man, you listen to what comes out of his mouth. Because what comes out of the well comes up in the bucket. Jesus said, "What, What comes out of the heart comes out of the mouth. That's how you know a man, by the language that he uses. And Paul basically saying the dirty tongue, the filthy tongue, the sarcastic tongue, the lying tongue, the degrading tongue, the gossiping tongue, the blasphemous tongue, they're, they're not fit for a prince of Christ. They don't belong in the life of a follower of Christ. And look at verse 5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Why should we not partake with those things? Verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Paul didn't say, "You, you once lived in darkness. He didn't say you lived in darkness. He said you once were darkness. But now you are light in Christ. God made you light. Have you ever thought about what happens in the dark? I mean, a lot of evil things happen in the dark. But you ever thought about what thrives in the dark? Roaches thrive in the dark. Spiders thrive in the dark. You turn a piece of wood over, it's covered in darkness, and what do you see? A bunch of ugly critters. They thrive in the darkness. Then I want you to look at Ephesians 5, 9. The contrast for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, and righteousness and truth. The works of the light are the fruit of the spirit, goodness, righteousness and truth. Did you know that fruit grows better in the light? There's a process called photosynthesis, photo meaning light, and so that plant it gets energy from the light and it It converts it into, eventually it uses that energy to grow and produce. So fruit thrives in the light. And roaches thrive in the darkness. And Paul said in verse 11, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. You know what Adrian Rogers said? Adrian Rogers said darkness only has one enemy. One enemy. He said, now you can't go into a dark room and shovel the darkness out. You can't go in there and sweep the darkness out. Darkness only has one enemy. Not two, not three, just one. What's the enemy to darkness? Light. If you want to drive out darkness, you turn on the light. Because light and darkness cannot have fellowship with one another. That's why Paul says, don't have fellowship with the works of darkness because what fellowship does light have with darkness? None. You cannot live in the dark and live in the light at the same time. You can't. And so Paul says, live in the light. We are to be the light of the world. And let me just say, if there's ever been a time that the world needs light, it's right now. Would you agree? We thank you, John Henry. We need light. We're living in a dark world. And we need the light of Christ. You know what Jesus said? Let your your light so shine before men that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know what the purpose of your good works are? It's not to shine the light on you. It's not to shine the light on me. It's to shine the light on Christ. That's the reason why we do good works. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because God has saved us. And they have a purpose, and it's to point people to Christ. Reverend Paul Gibson, you won't know this man most likely, but he was the administrator of Ridley Hall in Cambridge. Ridley Hall is a theological college in the UK. And so Reverend Gibson was being honored for his service there at Ridley Hall. And they were going to honor him by having a, an artist paint a full-size portrait of him. And so after they painted the portrait, he stood at that portrait and he looked at it. He said, you know, years from now... When people look at that portrait, they're not going to ask the question, who's the man in the portrait? They're going to ask, who is the artist behind the portrait? That's why we do good works. So that people don't look at us and say, what a man. They say, what a God who lives in the man. What a powerful God who can take a man and make him become that. That's why we live in the light. And so... When we do good works, when we live in the light, we point to Christ. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in light. And I want to give you one last word. We're to walk leery. Leery. You say, well, what does that mean? We're to walk cautiously. We're to walk carefully. We're to walk wisely. And I've shared this story with you before, but a few years ago when we were in West Africa in Burkina Faso, we went out to go show the, show the Jesus film one night, and we were in this rem- every area in, in Burkina Faso is remote, so this is kind of a mute point but we went out to this village and there was nothing out there and we went went under a tree and we went out early in the day so we could set everything up and we did a we did a worship service that lasted about two hours and then we did a bible study that lasted about two hours and then we showed the Jesus film that lasted about two hours and then then we had answered questions questions for about two hours wouldn't you like to come to church like that and you know when we got done it's about midnight and the village chief was there and he was open to the gospel and he was listening to everything that we were sharing. He said, I'd love for you to come back to my house where my son is. He's he's ill and he couldn't come and I want you to go pray for him. He said, My house is not far. I said, My house is not far. I don't see anything out here. I mean, there's nothing. And I mean, not far is a relative term. And so we began to walk through the African bush at midnight, and I told Gene Norris, who was with us, I said, Gene, you need to be looking for snakes. I said, because we are in a place where you could get on a snake. She said, well, I'm not worried. I said, you need to be looking for snakes. You know, Mickey Ford asked one of the guys one day, he said, what happens if a man gets bitten by a snake out here? That man said, he lay down and die. I think that's the, I think that's the heartbeat that Paul had when he wrote Ephesians 5, 15. This is what he said. See then that you walk circumspectly. Walk wisely. Walk cautiously. Walk carefully. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time." because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, we need to be leery of the things of this world. We need to walk cautiously in this world. Carefully. You know, a fool is not careful. A fool is not cautious. They're not leery of the things of this world. Now the Bible says, to walk wisely, not as fools. And then Paul made a comparison. He compared a person who 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 gets drunk with wine, to a person who's filled with the Spirit. He does a comparison and contrast. Do you know know what a person who's drunk with wine and a person who's filled with the Spirit have in common? They're both filled with something that controls them from the inside out. And so, Paul says here that a fool would be a person who's controlled by alcohol and a, a wise man is a person who's controlled by the Spirit. Do you know that alcohol has the ability to control you? It, it does. You know, I, I sometimes think about alcohol as being liquid courage. I mean, people get that liquid courage in them, they get bold. They get loud. They get confidence. They kind of get like the person who's like, you ever heard the, the last words of a redneck? Watch this. I mean, that's kind of liquid courage at work in some people, right? Right. And so I remember hearing a story of a man who went to a football game full of liquid courage. And I don't know why you would want to go to a football game full of liquid courage because you're not going to remember what happened. Now, I can understand that if you're pulling for some teams. I'm not going to name any. But this man, he was sitting at this football game full of liquid courage, and he was loud, and he was obnoxious, and he was getting on people's nerves. And finally, this young, muscular guy said, Okay, you you need to settle down. Well, the man full of liquid courage didn't like that, and so he lunged toward this young guy, and that young guy just popped him right in the mouth and knocked him on his back. that drunk guy got up. He dusted himself off. He said, now, that'll teach him to mess with me. (laughs) You see, alcohol will make you think and believe things that just aren't so. It will control you. And in Paul's day, the pagans would get drunk because they believed that when they did, they would connect with their pagan gods, and so that's what they would do. a little over a year ago, we were in Israel and we went to a place called Beth Shein. It's a lot of ruins there. And in that, in that particular location, there was a large amphitheater. And some of those of you who have been there, you remember this amphitheater. And in that amphitheater, they had what's called a vomitorium. And so what, what they would do is they would, they would get drunk and they would get so filthy, sloppily sloppy drunk, they would go to that vomitorium and what would they do? Not a pretty picture, is it? doesn't sound very wise, does it? And so Paul said, don't be, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And when, we, when you're drunk with wine, you give the alcohol authority and control over you. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you give, that, give the Spirit authority and control over you. And so you begin to do things that you normally wouldn't do. The Holy Spirit begins to do an inside job on you. He works on the inside, and He changes you from the inside out. It's amazing how He does that. And when you're filled by the Spirit, you live differently. You know what it means to be filled by the Spirit? Because people ask that. How, what, does mean, how, what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? How do you get filled by the Spirit? I want to give you a picture. Jesus was kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, moments away from the cross. He was having a hard time, wasn't he? Do you remember what Jesus said in that prayer? Not my will. But your will be done. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You yield to the Holy Spirit so He can do His will in you even when you don't understand it and even when it's difficult. Not my will, but your will. You know, in Galatians 5.16, the Bible says, if you walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you will stay yielded to the Holy Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Then Paul says in verse 16 that we need to redeem the time We need to walk wisely and make the most and the best use of our time. Do You know, time is such a limited resource. It's one of the most precious resources that you have. You don't even know how much you have of it. You can't buy it. You can't save it. You can't make it. And once you spend it, you can never get it back. It's gone. Time. And the question is, how are you using your time? What do you spend your time doing? Do you use your time wisely? Do you use it or do you abuse it? How do you use the time that God's given you? You know, a wise person looks at the time of their life and they say, I want to I use my life for the right purpose. For the right mission. I don't want to waste my life on things that don't matter. You know, sometimes a company, when they want to make sure they are directed in what they do, they will develop themselves a mission statement for their company. And that mission statement helps them to know how, to, how they're going to function so they don't get distracted by things that don't really matter and take away from their pursuit. So they have a mission statement. Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about a mission statement for your life? Have you ever sat down and wrote a mission statement out for how you're going to live on this earth so that you're not distracted by things that take you away from your mission? Did you know that Jesus had a mission statement? In some, some of your Bibles, it might not be in there but it's in Luke 1910. And it says this: "For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." That was Jesus' mission. And he wasn't going to let anything distract him from his mission. That was his purpose in life, because why? time matters. And we need to make the best and most use of it. I 'm going I'm to demonstrate this for you. Now I stole this. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I stole this. I saw it the other day on a video. I thought, man, what a powerful illustration. I really feel like it captures it. Now I've got this rope and I was going to get JB to, go ahead JB, grab that rope. He's going to take, this is a timeline of your life. Okay, let's just pretend this is a timeline of your life. I mean it just goes on and on and on. JB, there's a lot. JB can walk all the way down to the preschool hallway. Just keep going JB, you're going to see that thing goes and goes and goes. This is a timeline of your life. It's going on, it's going on. Okay, that's good JB, hope. It does, okay. This is the timeline of your life. Now think about it. Timeline of your life. Okay? Now listen to how most people live their lives. Now this, this is the time of your life on earth. This is your time in eternity. Most people live for this. They live for this little block, a little piece. And they work all their lives to get to this little piece right here on the very tip so they can enjoy retirement. Is that wise? How we live our lives? And so many of us are pursuing the wrong things whenever this is in stake, eternity. And we live for this when we ought to be living for that. You know, Jesus had a story, it's very similar to this. He talked about a man who was very wealthy, he was a farmer. He had so much money that the banks couldn't hold all of his money, so. Uh, in his barns. It couldn't hold all of his produce. And so he tore those barns down. He built, new, he built bigger ones. He built bigger, better ones so he could store all of his produce. And he said, Yeah, no, I'm so thankful. Thank you, J.B. He said, I'm so thankful that now I can sit back and just relax. I'm set for life. I've got all this produce in my barns. And then, then the Bible says that the Lord said to him, and he said to him, You know, tonight your life is required of you. You've you've banked all those things, but now whose will they belong to now? You know, the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. No matter what you have on this earth, when you die, it will stay right here. Because it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It is the Lord's. It belongs to Him. And so Jesus said, "A, a man who is a fool is somebody who is... Rich in this earth and neglects Christ and rejects Christ. They live for this. The Bible says that we need to walk in love. we need to walk in the light, and we need to walk leery, wisely, cautiously, redeeming the time. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know who the greatest fool is? The greatest fool is a person who will sit in a service like this and hear the gospel shared and walk out and neglecting or rejecting. That's the greatest fool. And God is calling us to surrender to Him today because you never know how much time you have. And so maybe this morning you need to come to Christ. And maybe you've you've never, never placed your faith in Christ. And maybe today you need to do that. What about the change? What about the difference? Or maybe this morning you realize, you know, I just don't walk in love. And I want to come and say, God, help me to walk in love. I want to be filled with the Spirit so I begin to love like you want me to love. Or I'm not walking in the light. I've got all these things in my life and I want to walk in the light. Maybe this morning you just need to come and say, God, I surrender these things to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can walk in the light. Or maybe you've just been reckless with your time and how you live your life. And maybe this morning you say, God, i I come surrendered. I, I say, not my will, but your will be done. I want you to be on the throne of my life. I don't want you to be resident in me. I want you to be president over me. I want you to go. Maybe that's how you need to respond. But you know, so many people hear the messages and they walk out the doors and they forget all that they heard. You have to act on it immediately. Let me encourage you to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the beauty of the scripture. Thank you for the beauty of your word, as it reminds us who we are in Christ. Thank you that you've made us princes and princesses in Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. And Lord, how you've taken us who are dead and you made us alive in Christ. But Lord, also realize there are people who aren't alive in Christ. They're still outside of Christ. They've rejected you. Neglected you, whatever. And they're not walking in you. Lord, I just pray right now, your Holy Spirit, draw them. Lord, I also pray for folks that might be sitting here who aren't walking in love or walking in the light, or maybe they're not walking wisely in this world. And maybe, Lord, they just need to say, I want you to fill me. I want you to control me. I want you to govern me. Lord, would you just draw them? Help them to make commitments. The way you've led them. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to respond however the Lord leads you. You do it immediately. Don't hesitate. Let me encourage you to do that. Let's stand together as we sing. To every question, the one solution.